college students throughout the country have reported substantial increases in their workload during the 2020-21 academic year. Few faculty members, though, intentionally increased student workloads during this challenging year. In this episode, we explore some reasons for student perceptions of increased workload. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Betsy Berry. Betsy is the Executive Director of the Center for Advancement of Teaching at Wake Forest University. In 2017, she won, with Justin Essary, the Professional and Organizational Development Network and Higher Education's Innovation Award for their course Workload Estimator. Welcome back, Betsy. Thanks. It's great to be back. It's great to talk to you again. Our teas today are... So I'm not drinking tea. I'm having many cups of coffee today. (laughs) Well, still warm. Still warm and still caffeinated. I'm drinking Irish breakfast today. And I have ginger peach green tea. Nice. An old favorite. So we've invited you here today to talk about your recent blog post that addresses the impact of pandemic instruction on student workload. Can you talk a little bit about how the pandemic has affected student perceptions of their workload? Yeah, sure. So this issue has cropped up for many of us. I'm sure anyone who's listening to this podcast has maybe in the spring, but particularly in the fall. And I think that's really interesting too, that fall, it became an even bigger issue than it was last spring, that we started to hear from students in our online courses and in our blended courses, not just online, that workload was overwhelming, perhaps even double. And we heard it at Wake Forest. We started hearing it anecdotally. And then I would talk to my colleagues at other institutions who of their own initiative would bring it up that they had heard it anecdotally as well. We saw on Twitter folks talking about this. And then we at Wake Forest did an all-student survey where we didn't ask about workload. We probably should have. But it was the number one thing that came up in their open-ended comments when we coded those. And so it just reinforced this idea that clearly this is a universal challenge. And it was a challenge across our schools, too. So it wasn't just our undergraduate students. We were hearing it in our divinity school, in our law school, in our business school. And so something was going on, and it was really intriguing to me because clearly students felt like the workload was overwhelming. But, and this is what we've all said, it's not as if all of us just sat down and said, we want to give students a lot more work this semester. So I was fascinated by it, talked to a bunch of people about it, was thinking about it. I know you all have been thinking about it and just decided to write some of my thoughts in a blog post. One of the great things in the response to that blog post is lots of folks have come up with other ideas that I think are just as plausible too. Do you think faculty believe that they're giving more work to their students? That's actually a really interesting question because the sort of premise of my blog post is that, and this was Jody Green said, no one sat down to give more work to students. But since I've written it and talked to some faculty, there are some faculty who are like, yeah, maybe I did. Maybe I did give a little bit too much work. And that's worth noting. But there are just as many faculty, maybe more faculty who say, actually, I've given less work this semester and I've tried to dial it back and lower the stakes than I have in the past. And so the fact that there's that large body of faculty that think they're doing the opposite and then the student perception is something different, it's really interesting. One thing that you just said, Betsy, about the lower stakes piece raises an interesting question because a lot of professional development about going online and using effective teaching practices talks a lot about low stakes assignments and the ability to check in on things more often, but maybe they're smaller assignments. 
Do you think that's happening more? Well, I think it's a good thing that it is. And my guess is that's part of what's causing the problem or the challenge. Maybe it's not a problem, but just is causing this sort of disconnect is that our faculty, particularly many of our institutions in the summer, did a lot of professional development around good online teaching practices and just good teaching practices in general. And also really emphasize, at least at Wake Forest, we really emphasize this is a pandemic. Our students are struggling. Let's lower the stakes on things. Let's be understanding. And so one way to do that is by having smaller, low stakes assignments. So instead of a big midterm, you have multiple weekly check-ins. But of course, our students can interpret that as, quote unquote, more work, because if you're just counting work by counting the number of assignments, then it is by definition more work. So instead of one midterm, you now have five short assignments. That's five times the amount of work. And so instead of counting it in terms of how much time the assignments take, they could be counting it just the overwhelming number of assignments seems like more work. And I think that's what's going on, or at least part of what's going on. And I've said to some people that this is actually a good sign that change did happen over the summer because we didn't hear as much about this in the spring. People kept their one midterm and their final. At least I didn't hear about it as much. Maybe you two did, but I didn't hear as much about it in the spring. But then they redesigned their courses in the fall. And the fact that we're all hearing about this suggests that people actually did things differently. Now, again, still could be better, but that's kind of a good sign to me. Now, the question is, how do you dial that back? And how do we communicate with students about it? All really complex. But I do think it's that breaking big assignments into smaller assignments is part of a contributing factor here. And we know that students tend to do a lot of cramming. They tend to do mass practice. But we know that space practice is more helpful and that we know the benefits of retrieval practice. And that's something I think that most faculty development centers emphasize with faculty. And I know at our campus, we had more faculty participate than we've ever seen. We had more people participate in professional development workshops than we generally see over a four or five year period. For the people who were resistant to professional development in the past, they were learning about the benefits of retrieval practice and space practice and learning about the benefits of using low stakes exams, as you were just talking about. And I agree that that's a good thing, but we know that the practices that students use to study tend to be mass practice. They tend to do repeated rereading, and now they're being asked to retrieve information. And we know that students believe that that's less effective, and it's certainly more work for students. So your point about retrieval practice, and we know students believe it's less effective to be engaging in this continual retrieval practice, I think is really interesting. And I think that's what we're seeing when our students say, we have more busy work. So it's not just that there's more work, but that it's actually more busy work. And part of what's going on there is that they think that that practice that they're engaged in is not valuable. If you are giving assignments that are about practice and the students see it as busy work, that's part of us communicating the value of this work and helping our students understand how they actually learn and how it will help them on the later exams, I think is really important. That's not the only challenge. I think busy work isn't the only kind of challenge. It's also, I think, for those of us in the humanities, I think what we're seeing is that the new tools we have available to us make it easier for us to hold our students accountable for doing all the reading when typically they wouldn't do all the reading. And typically students wouldn't say it's busy work, but there's more reading that they have to do than they ever had to do before. And so that's one hypothesis as well. But I think another point about the busy work and the retrieval practice, moving one exam to 10 short assignments is, and I talk about this in the post as well, is that there is a sense in which that could be adding to your work and that they have to keep track of it all. And I think our students are not used to having to keep track of so many assignments. So typically, as a faculty developer leading a teaching center, I may have a faculty member come to me that wants to redesign their course, and I make all these suggestions, and they do it, and it's fine. 
And the reason it's fine is because, yes, it's a little bit more work and a little bit more stressful for the students, but it's only one course. But I think what we saw is that all of a sudden our students were moving from five courses where there were three assignments to five courses where there are 15 to 20 assignments or more. And that was even more compounding the exponential growth that they felt. So I teach with lots of small assignments. I always have. Students would sometimes say this is more work than a typical class, but they weren't upset about it. They didn't feel overwhelmed by it. That's because, again, it wasn't five of their courses that were doing it. So it is a really interesting question of when we go back post pandemic, do we want all of our courses to work this way? And how do we help our students readjust to this is the new workload or this is going to be the new experience of the new workload? Or do we not want to do that? And I think that's an interesting conversation for all of us to have moving forward. I know one of the things that I've had in conversations with students, just anecdotally, but also in some of the formal research that I've been working on related to students with disabilities, is the time management piece and just trying to manage and organize all the moving parts that are on all these different platforms is complex. But also that moving with more materials online has resulted in more reading and writing. Interesting. Rather than other modalities that we might typically use in a face-to-face class, like face-to-face conversation, which to them seems really much more time-consuming. And it may actually be more time-consuming, especially if you have a particular kind of disability. Right. So there are a couple of things to say there. So I did say one of the things I noticed is when you read student concerns about this, they will often say things like, it took me this much time to do a discussion post. And that's, I think, really revealing for all of us to understand. We often think, okay, the discussion posts are going to take the place of the discussion in class. But right now I'm just talking to you two and I'm not thinking very hard about what I'm saying. And in fact, if you created a transcript of this, which you guys probably will, I'll be embarrassed to read it because I don't think it's as coherent as I want it to be. And if I were writing a discussion post, I would think very carefully about how I formulate my thoughts and my arguments and even proofread. And it's going to take a lot more time if I'm actually writing it out. And I think that's really important for us to acknowledge that discussion posts and a discussion are not a one-to-one replacement. Or if we want it to be a one-to-one replacement, then we need to tell our students, we expect you to treat it as if you're not actually writing something that's meant to be thoughtful. We just want to hear your opinions about this. So that's one piece. But then in terms of your point about disabilities, I think it's really interesting in that all the best practices for universal design for learning, we can revisit. And I didn't talk about this in my post, but I should have. So thank you, Rebecca, for sharing this wrinkle, because I think it's an important part of it, is that giving students options for how they can do this work will also empower them to do things that they think are most efficient for their time. So if they can do a voice thread or make a video or one of the activities that some of our faculty have found very successful as an asynchronous replacement for discussion is to just put students in groups and tell them in your own time, you get together, have a Zoom discussion about the material, record it and send it to me that you've had that discussion. So they actually have a discussion. It's just sort of asynchronously done. But in general, giving students options, it's not going to solve every problem, but it does empower them to have choice because there will be some students who prefer to write than to speak. But there may be some who are like, I'm tired of writing. I want to actually just speak. And then in terms of the material, I think there was this recent meta-analysis that just came out like last week about video versus text, which was really interesting. And as a humanist, I'm sad to see this, but it's not surprising that sometimes video can be better for student learning than a text can be. Because I often think, oh, I'll just give them something to read and that will be the replacement for a lecture. But maybe sometimes there's a way in which they'd rather watch somebody talk about that material rather than read about it. Or by extension, just listen to the material like in a podcast or something. Yeah, podcasts are a great opportunity. And we've heard students say, when I'm walking around campus or when I'm working out, and it allows them, again, to expand their schedule where they have more time to do things and 
no screen time, which is something they really appreciate because there's so much Zoom fatigue that being able to listen to something where they don't have to read online or they don't have to watch online, they can just listen to it as a real relief for them. Absolutely. Unsurprising, you all like podcasts. Anything that gets us off the screen actually is something (laughs) that I work a lot to do with my design students because whether it's a pandemic or not, we spend a lot of time on the screen. Yeah, fair enough. So you're an expert at this. Yeah, you've thought about this. That's great. Yeah, for sure. I think we need to think about that more. But I know even for people who are teaching asynchronously before, some people have started using new tools. On our campus, for example, people who used to give students readings as a basis for discussions now are having students use hypothesis for the discussions, which means students actually have to open the reading and actually (laughs) respond to the text, which can take a lot more time than just skimming over the abstract and responding to it. And similarly, I've been posting videos for 20 some years in my classes, but now I'm doing it where there's questions embedded in it, which means they actually have to watch them now for a small portion of their grade. So I think some of the tools that people are using may provide more learning, may provide more engagement, but also are going to take a lot more time than how people use them before. And you noted in your blog post that many students would be able to get by and coast to get the grade they want without doing a lot of the things faculty assume that they did. (laughs) But again, I'm not sure that's a bad thing, but it does require more time on average. Yeah, it's a complicated question. This is self-report, so it could be even lower than this, but just general self-report on how much time students spend each week studying. It's about 15 hours a week on average prior to the pandemic. And that is for a full-time student. So imagining 15 credit hours, they're studying, it's one-to-one. And many faculty assume or hope that it's more than (laughs) one-to-one. But students are very strategic. They're learning an important skill and figuring out what does need to get done and what doesn't need to get done to be able to be successful in a course. And so certainly appreciate that. But I think recognizing this disconnect is important because it helps us understand why faculty didn't think they were giving more work, but students actually did have more work because faculty were mistakenly assuming that students were spending 30 hours a week studying when really they were only spending 15. And so Being aware of that now helps us have a much more honest conversation about, well, what do we expect the standards to be for students? And there are differences across different institutions and different programs. So our graduate professional programs where folks are working full time have different sorts of informal expectations, I think, than others. And so it's worth it for all of us to come together and to talk about that. But I will say, I do think it's just important to say, I probably said this in the post, but we do know that the more time students spend on a task, the more they will learn. So it's not just like we're piling on the hours because we want to punish them or we think that's just really what rigorous teaching is. It's that actually we know you'll learn more if you spend more time thinking about a text or practicing the problems, as you said, John, that this will help you learn more. So you obviously don't want to expect so much that they can't do other things they have to do in their life. So that's the tension. I think my recommendation would always be if you have to have a full-time job, you shouldn't be a full-time student because that's like too much work. So thinking about how do we calibrate the courses that students take to how much time they're actually able to put into it is really important. So yeah, I do think that that's happening. It's not the only thing. Again, I also think there are faculty who probably expect too much as well, because we're not good at estimating how much time it takes for students to do things. I think hypothesis is a great example. I use hypothesis in my class. I love it. If you're a humanist and you haven't used, or if you have assigned readings and you haven't used hypothesis or perusal, go look it up and find it. It's pretty amazing. But I think that remembering that Yes, it will make them read. So that's extra time because they're actually going to have to read and they're going to have to read carefully enough to have good questions (laughs) so they can't skim it, as you said, John. But then all the time it takes to actually read everybody else's comments, really remembering that. And that's where I, as a newbie to online, that was like a aha moment for me when one of my colleagues who's an expert in online teaching was like, it's not just the time it takes for them to write their own discussion posts. 
It's also they have to read everybody else's. So there's extra reading that's involved that's not just the text itself, but it's also reading everybody else's responses. And so putting them in groups where they're responding to fewer people or reading fewer people is a really useful tool. Again, I think probably all of these hypotheses are going on and it's worth us being honest about all of them instead of saying, oh, it's definitely the students or it's definitely the faculty. It's like, we're all in this together. Let's figure out how we move forward. A nice thing perhaps would be to give students information about how much time these tasks take. And it would be nice if there was a tool for that, (laughs) which I believe you have created. So yes, we have a tool that actually we made pre-pandemic. One thing I want to say, because a lot of people have used this tool, and I think sometimes people use it in ways that are asking it to do more than it was intended to do, (laughs) and that it is very much an estimator. It is not meant to be a calculator that is the exact amount of time that your students are going to spend on something. And it's very broad. It was essentially just something that I was interested in creating as I was thinking about how much work I assign students in terms of reading and writing. And the original version of it is very much tilted towards reading and writing. So oftentimes we hear from STEM folks like, what about problem sets? And that's just the Wild West in terms of how much time students spend on that. It's much harder to get a handle on it. So it's not there. But there are places in this estimator where you can add a new assignment that isn't captured by reading and writing and just give your own estimates for how much time you think students will spend. And the main value of this estimator, I think, is that I found that many of my colleagues, myself included, are just not good at the head math required. We just keep adding these assignments and we think we have a good sense, but literally sitting down and writing out like, okay, they have to go to the library to get this source. Well, it's going to take up some time to walk to the library and walk back, like literally things like that. Realizing how much time you're asking of your students and then adding it up can be really valuable. And I would do it sometimes on the back of an envelope, but it was chaos. And so I thought, why can't we just have a calculator that does this? So we have an old version of the calculator. We have a new version that my colleagues in online education at Wake Forest, Alan Brown, helped us work on to add in discussion posts and video lectures and other things so that it's a little bit closer to what asynchronous online courses might involve. And it can be a tool for overall assessment, but also individual assignment assessment of like how much time might it spend for them to do this type of reading or to do these types of videos. And if you disagree with what the estimator says, my favorite feature of the estimator is you can manually adjust it so you don't have to get in arguments with us. Whatever your own assumptions are, you can go in there and put that in and you'll still be surprised with what the total amount is probably. At least I often am (laughs) that I'm giving more than I realize and I have to go back and make some hard choices. So hopefully it's a, a useful tool for everyone. But as John, you said, one of the best things about it is it allows us to better communicate with our students about what we're expecting as well. And we've heard from so many students who have found it super helpful in the courses that have done this, both students who are struggling, but also students who are crazy overachievers and who will spend 20 hours on a one-page paper. It's a real relief to them. Even if they only spend four hours when they're supposed to spend one, at least it's four and not 20. So it helps them manage their time as well. One of the things that I've done, at least on longer-term projects, that has worked really well for me and my students is having them keep a timesheet and asking them to divide out tasks. And I pose it to them so that we're in the design field. So it's to help them think about how they might price something in the future so they know how long it takes them. So that's how you get the buy-in. But what it helps me do is see how long it takes them to do certain things and realize it's like, why did you spend this amount of time doing this thing? That was really (laughs) not important. This other thing was much more important. And then you can coach the group on those sorts of things, which can be helpful. And along those same lines, one of the things that I run into, and this may fit more into the idea of problem sets or things like this is how much time students will try to problem solve a technical issue that they just aren't problem solving in the right way at all. And so they could spend hours trying to do something that if they just asked a question, (laughs) I would have taken two minutes. Like ask for directions. (laughs) Yeah. So I've been reminding my students, especially since the fall, where we've been doing much more online, that if you're spending more than 15 minutes trying to solve this technical problem, A, take a break. You're just going in circles. 
maybe come back and try again. But if you're spending much more time than that, then that, that's a good clue that you need to ask for help. That's really smart and really, I think, super helpful. And I think getting feedback from our students about how much time they're spending is not just good at the individual level of coaching. It also is great formative feedback for adjusting our own expectations. Again, and it corrects the estimator. Maybe you put it in the estimator and that's happened to me too. And I realized because one of the things about the estimator, it's best about reading usually in terms of its reading estimates. But one of the central insights from the reading literature is that the difficulty of a text is just as much about the student's vocabulary as it is about the text itself. So I would guess this is a pretty easy text for my second year students at Wake Forest. And then if they're all taking a lot longer, what I realize is that actually I misjudged their familiarity with these concepts that would be in this book, that this book is actually harder than I thought it would be. So I need to up it in terms of the estimator to say, actually, there are more new concepts than I realized that the students are engaging with, and it's going to take more time. So asking the students is just as important as you communicating with them. It's a two-way street for sure to get that formative feedback. I also think telling them about time management and struggling with time management. I've seen some really good strategies. I know our Learning Assistance Center, who works with students, has some good counseling that they do with students about how do they create a master syllabus or kind of a calendar for when they're going to do things. And I also saw somebody, I think, shared it on the pod listserv, but a strategy of creating a Google Calendar with basically time slots for all of your activities in your course, and then students import it into their Google Calendar and move those around. So you would set it up like two hours for reading this text, and then they could move it in their calendar. And so that works for them, but they basically see the blocks of time that they need to set aside. And if they did that for every class, it would be even better. They could see, oh, wow, this is 40 hours in a week. I need to set aside time to do this work. And frankly, we should be doing that even before the pandemic. But we're learning this lesson now of how to help our students manage time and due dates and all of that, because it is a little bit more. And again, I also want to emphasize too, not just all the cognitive load of multiple assignments, but learning new tools also takes time. This is kind of your point about troubleshooting, Rebecca. Like if a student has never used the video function on Canvas, they may find themselves spending 45 minutes trying to get the video function to work when that's not in any of our calculations of their assignment. We're assuming they're just going to record the video and upload it. So being mindful of the time it takes them to learn a new tool in this scenario is also really important. You mentioned the issue of reading tied to students' prior knowledge and vocabulary, but that's going to vary a lot across students. So I know a lot of people, when they include estimates from the calculator, will say, this is an estimate of what this is. Your mileage may vary and keep track of how long it takes you to do these things and use that to adjust your future estimates of the time requirements for these tasks. That's a nice idea, too, to say you students adjust. So that's really smart. I like that a lot. For sure, it varies across students. And especially, I mean, even thinking about students with disabilities is an even more interesting challenge. And there is an interesting question. I've had some good conversations about to what extent, if we're putting that estimate, the average in the syllabus, does that create problems for students who may be slower? They think that there's a deficit. So you need to be thinking about how you frame it, I think is really important. And to be upfront that saying it is expected and that is the normal course of things that we'll all have different rates. And this is a ballpark average. You could even put a range might be an idea too of ballparks there, but recognizing and saying it's totally understandable that there'll be students taking a different amount of time. Because again, prior knowledge, it's not just ability. It's all sorts of other things. How often have you read in the past? How often have you worked with technology in the past? Any of these things, they're going to make a difference. One of the things that conversations about perceptions of workload lead me to is I wonder what the perceptions of learning are. Yeah, I think this is a great question because when we think about how students, quote unquote, got by in the past by doing less work, what they meant by get by was successfully complete the course and get the grade that they desired. 
if we actually ask them about how much they learn, I don't know. I mean, that's a really interesting question. Would they say, oh, well, it takes more to get my A now. So that's duplicating the workload. But oh, by the way, I'm also learning more. It would be interesting to see. I mean, it depends on if, if the primary issue here is that students are doing less work before and now they're doing all the work we expected to them, then I think you would expect a lot more learning. But there could also be these issues of it's a pandemic. I'm in crisis. I can't work as quickly. If those are the issues or I'm overwhelmed by the multiple assignments and I can't keep track, then there may not be as much learning happening. So my guess is there's probably equal levels of learning. It's totally a guess. But in other words, that there are challenges to this moment that students learn less, but there are also things that we're doing better than we have in the past that make up for that. But I hope that we get some good empirical data on some of this and think through it, because I do think that these strategies, while they are more work, are also probably likely to lead to deeper and lasting learning as well. If the students are able to do it, there's also the challenge of students who just give up and then get overwhelmed and they're just completely behind and then they have no motivation to even do a little bit. And so we wanna be mindful of that too. But if they're able to keep up, I'm hopeful at least (laughs) that these things should, at least from the research, they should lead to more learning, but who knows. In terms of student reactions though, student perceptions of what's most effective is often passive learning and repeated reading. Fluency illusion makes it seem that you've mastered the material without being confronted with some type of evidence that you really don't know this stuff quite as well, and that all the techniques that we're actively encouraging in teaching centers are giving students more feedback more regularly about what they know and what they don't know. And that doesn't feel as good. And there was a study at Harvard about a year and a half or so ago where they surveyed students on how they perceive their learning relative to the actual learning gains they received across both lecture-based classes and classes that relied on active learning. And there have been a lot of such studies where, in general, students believe that active learning is not as effective, yet the learning gains tend to be significantly greater. So there is a bit of a disconnect between what students perceive as being effective and what actually is effective, which also can lead to that perception of busy work that you mentioned before. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think... I mean, this would be a whole other podcast. You probably all have done all these podcasts thinking about this issue of student perceptions about learning. I think part of it is what they're used to. There's a lot of things that are going into helping all of us understand how we learn and what works and what doesn't work. And so I think there is a hope for us to try to sort of bring them along with us, I guess I would say. I guess the sort of valuable insight from those studies is that we shouldn't take for granted that if students say they're not learning, that they aren't learning that we need to recognize that they may be. And so part of our job is to help them understand with hopefully concrete evidence that we can show them, look, you're actually learning here in significant ways to help them understand why we are choosing these approaches. And it's not just because we don't want to teach or we're lazy or what are those stories people tell about active learning moving forward. So I think part of the way we bring them along is to also acknowledge that sometimes there may be assignments that are not useful. And that there may be sometimes things that are overly burdensome in terms of time. And so instead of just always being, you're wrong, students, you're wrong here, let us tell you how it is to say, okay, let's listen to our students and say, actually, that assignment, it took more time than it was worth. And so we're going to think creatively together about things that will work for you, but also acknowledging that there's a long literature on how people learn that should inform it and not just perceptions that make a difference. I think when I've even asked students about some of those things, like, what do you wish you had more of? They do realize that when you have those little assignments that hold them accountable and help them practice, I had students asking for more. In the fall, I had students saying, we had a few of those. Those were helpful. We wish we had more of those. Yeah, there's no question. We saw that in our survey too. And that's the reality of anytime you do a study, it's an average. 
on average, students think they're learning less, but there are always going to be students who, oh, I'm aware I've seen this happening. And there'll be students who sort of totally miss the boat. But yeah, we saw that for sure. We saw students who appreciated the check-ins, but the number one thing that we saw from our students on various questions was that they wanted more opportunities to work with each other, which normally they don't like that in this literature, right? It's like, oh, I want to be taught by a teacher and not by my peer. But in the pandemic moment, when they don't get to connect with their peers, like socially, so our students are back on campus at Wake Forest, but there's lots of restrictions on what they're allowed to do with each other socially. So especially for some of our first year students who hadn't made friends yet, this was their opportunity. Classroom collaboration was their opportunity to make friends. And so, yes, it was tied to their learning, but they also really just appreciated it and said, I want to be able to work more. They helped me understand the material more. So they were calling out both the sort of friendship aspect, the social aspect, and saying, oh, it helped me feel more confident in the material because I could ask questions. So I certainly think it's not a universal story that students are upset about these kinds of active learning and small stakes things. But it's more universal, I think, that they feel like there's a lot more work. And so that's what's so interesting. Rarely do you have a finding or experience where so many people are in an agreement about this. And so it's just such an interesting thing that I have not met a person who said I felt like I had less work. That's kind of interesting. But there was one student in our survey, I think I quoted this in our blog post that was really interesting, where she said, the courses are easier, but they're emotionally more difficult. So the online courses are easier, but it's emotionally more difficult and more difficult to try hard for. One of my hypotheses was that being in a pandemic makes our capacity to work lower. And so I think that's part of what that person was getting at. Everything feels like more work, even if it's the same amount of work. And I am guessing that it's both that and also maybe a little bit more work, too, that's going on. I'm I'm curious to see what happens in the spring. We're going to do our survey again. And we did have some interventions where we talked about this, but there's no mandates about what people are going to do. So we're going to ask our faculty again what they're doing. And then we're going to ask our students and see if things got better. And hopefully that'll make us understand maybe which hypotheses are more or less likely to be true. Who knows? If anything, at least this is something faculty and students all have in common. We all feel like we have more work. Yeah. Well, and actually, we didn't even mention this, and I didn't mention it in my blog post because it was already too long, is some of the switch to low stakes assignments also increases the workload for faculty. You don't have to assess it all, but many of us are just used to that. So we look at everything and grade everything. And so certainly we heard a lot on our faculty survey of, I cannot sustain this for another semester. So this semester, we may find that many of them have shifted back to fewer, larger assignments. So I'm not sure. We just heard some anecdotes, but I could see that happening too for their own workload's sake as well. And in addition to the trauma of the pandemic and all the issues associated with that, I believe you also mentioned the fact that many students signed up for face-to-face classes and just being in an online environment is going to make them less happy. And if you're not as happy in that environment, it's going to seem like more work. That's right. Yeah. And this is where I had a throwback to my own time tracking (laughs) that I did. Maybe five or six years ago, I did time tracking of my own time. And I was fascinated because I wasn't very good at predicting what I was spending my time on. If I didn't like being in a meeting, I felt like it dragged on and on and on. If I was reading a book that was really exciting, I thought it was like this. But actually, if I went back, oh, I was actually spending a lot of time or even just working on a design project, I would just lose hours staying up till however many hours in the night because it's exciting to me. It doesn't feel like work. And so my guess is that there's some of that going on too. And I will say in our survey, there was a group of students who were really unhappy with online learning in general, not specific teachers, not specific strategies as they did not want online. And so those students, obviously, if they had that much anger and sadness about being online, I can't imagine that they would be excited and enjoying like just another 15 minutes of online would be a slog for them, you know? And so I'm sure that things are slower because they're not enjoying it. 
because they didn't choose it. And I think that's a really important thing for all of us in higher ed to be thinking about is that just because there are some students who are unhappy with online right now doesn't mean that online itself is the problem. It's partially giving our students autonomy and choice of how they experience their courses. And there are some of our students who just really want to be in person. And those students are probably also the people who really want to be socializing with their friends. And they aren't getting any of that right now. And so they're doubly upset, triply upset, like many of us. And that's not a good position to be in to enjoy your work. So work is really work. I'm sure that some of that's going on. I spent a decade working on our faculty assembly one semester. I like that. Yeah, there you go. That's true. Right. Sometimes there are some things that just drags on. Time is tricky like that. Some of our students also commented on just sitting in their dorm rooms all day on their computer screen all day and leaving to get takeout food and coming back. And they're in singles. Often a lot of them are in singles because we de-densified our dorms. Like it's just not a great mode of existence. And so anything they can do to get away from the screen, as Rebecca, as you said, I think is a really valuable strategy for all of us to try to incorporate into our courses. I've noticed this semester. In my classes, I have really good engagement. They're synchronous online. I can see people contributing, but there's a lot less camera use this semester than there was even last semester with some of the same students. And maybe it's the winter slog. Oh, the winter won't end. But it's just also just being on screen and feeling almost like you're in performing mode. I think it's some of that too. I'd like to turn my screen off sometimes. I was just going to say that for those of us that are in committee meetings all the time with our colleagues, like we're still with screens on all day. And yeah, I absolutely think that there's just an exhaustion and awareness that there's another semester of this. We don't know when it's going to end. Really tough, certainly. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? Well, if I knew what was next for the fall, I'd be a millionaire right now. Who knows what's next for the fall? I think that's the biggest challenge for all of us as we're thinking about higher ed in the near term, at least, is what's going to happen in the fall. But I do think with respect to the topic of this podcast, we often talk about when the pandemic ends. It's going to be like a trickle, I think. There's not going to be a sharp ending to it. But whenever we start talking about the future of higher ed in a serious way, I do think there's going to be a very interesting question about how much do we expect of our students outside of class? And what is an appropriate workload? What is the nature of a credit hour? All of those kinds of questions should be on the table because I know for a fact that many of my faculty, even when they go back to in-person, are going to want to keep using these strategies. They've read the research that we presented to them this summer and they see that it's valuable and that their students are learning. And so it's not as if the workload is going to decrease dramatically, I'm guessing, when we go back to in-person. So we may need to have larger conversations about that in higher ed. Thanks so much for joining us, Betsy. It's always a pleasure. It was great to be back. I love this podcast. Thanks so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.